One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In the winter of 1222 to 1223, the leadership of Kievan Rus received urgent appeals for help from the tribe called the Cumans, who inhabited the steppe lands to their south. In an act of unusual unity, various princes of the Russian lands formed a joint army to counter the threat of an invading force arriving from the east. The threat was taken seriously, but not as seriously as if they had known the full nature of the enemy that was approaching, and how their whole world was about to be turned upside down. For the new enemy were the Mongols, who had already just crushed the mighty armies of both the Persians and the Chinese, who were about to reach Europe with potentially devastating consequences. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of the Kalka River of the year 1223, Part 1 of 3. The state which historians today call Kievan Rus is the polity that existed between the 9th and 13th centuries in the region centred around the city of Kiev, the capital of modern-day Ukraine. The date of its beginning is disputed, but for certain, the event which crystallised its cultural and political character was the baptism of Prince Vladimir the Great in the year 988, and his decision to convert his people to Orthodox Christianity. As for the end of Kievan Rus, well, the beginning of the end was the year 1223, on the arrival of the Mongols, the subject of this set of episodes. The early years of Kievan Rus between the reigns of Vladimir the Great and his great-grandson, Vladimir Amonomak, who died in 1125, are considered a kind of golden age, in which the promotion of Christianity encouraged the blossoming of culture. In the area of architecture, the first stone churches were constructed on the orders of Vladimir the Great's son and successor, Yaroslav the Wise, most notably the Church of the Tyres and the St. Sophia Cathedral, both in Kiev. The earliest Kievan churches were built and decorated with frescoes and mosaics by Byzantine masters, but the Russian churches soon developed their own style, including the domes for which they are famous today. Another distinctive feature of Russian Orthodoxy, all the way from the early days of Kievan Rus to the present day, is the popularity of icons, that is, depictions of saints or religious scenes typically painted on wood. Just as for the architecture of churches, the first examples were strongly influenced by Byzantium, but over time the East Slavs developed their own style. Yaroslav the Wise also commissioned the first historical chronicle of the region, known today as the Primary Chronicle, through which most of our knowledge of Kievan Rus is derived. When attempting to interpret the work like any medieval chronicle, the motivations of his authors, in this case the monks of Kiev, must be questioned. Geoffrey Hosking, in his book 
Russia and the Russians gives the opinion that the work was a deliberate attempt to define the historical story of the Rus. Its authors, the monks of Kiev, he says, sought to not only record the principal moments in the evolution of the East Slavs, but to, quote, link them to a vision of history as ordained by God. This was a task of ideology, state-building and community-building, all at the same time, end quote. The other great written work of Yaroslav's reign was the law code known as Ruskaya Pravda, which maintained its authority in Kiev and its daughter realms right through to late 15th century. The most important innovation of the code was to restrict the use of blood feuds as a means of settling conflicts. From now on, crimes would be punished by the levying of fines, which were to be proportionate to the offence caused. The region's growing wealth was built primarily on trade and the exporting of furs, hides, honey, wax and corn. Over time, the larger towns developed a vibrant economy, with artisans producing glassware, pottery, ceramics, jewels and religious icons, and so developed not only their own source of wealth, but their own hinterlands, independent from Kiev. A fundamental change gradually took place in East Slav society, similar in many ways to earlier changes in Western Europe, where a social order centred on kinship and tribal loyalties developed into one based more on commerce and connection to the ruler of a princely town. Thus references in the primary chronicles to tribes, such as Drevlians or Severians, are replaced with references to armies of people from a particular town or other. There also developed a strong sense of the unity of all lands under the authority of the Rus princes, all of whom descended from Vladimir the Great. As these leaders adopted the name Rus, the Slavic identity associated with that name, not the Scandinavian one, became the basis of self-identification, as did the Christian religion promoted by the same rulers. Thus, over time, in towns especially, writes Janet Martin in her book, Medieval Russia, 980-1584 Customs ranging from preferences for certain styles of clothing accessories to burial practices that had distinguished Slavs from Finns, Scandinavians from emigre Khazars and visiting Byzantines became more homogenised. Interaction between the Rurikid princes and their subjects resulted in the formation of a society tightly knit together by economic and cultural threads. End quote. This occurred in spite of the persistent problems of succession and almost ceaseless warfare between the members of the ruling dynasty, the Rurikids. Yaroslav the Wise, after his own bloody ascent to the throne, foresaw the dangers of internecine warfare, and so in his will he divided his realm among his sons, giving each a principality of his own. The throne of Kiev, which would come not only with the Kievan but Novgorodian lands, but also with supreme power over the other princes, was to go to the eldest brother. The others would rule under his patronage and supervision in their separate realms. The idea was that the Kievan throne would pass from elder brothers to younger ones until one generation of princes died out. The new generation would then start again, beginning with the eldest son of the eldest brother. Such a system proved, however, quite unworkable, and led to repeated bouts of conflict. 
and so instead, in 1097, Prince Vladimir Monomarch initiated a reform of the rules of succession. At a conference in 1097 in Lübeck, then an important town but today a small settlement near the border of Ukraine and Belarus, a new system was devised where each prince, instead of rotating their seat of power between towns, would stay to rule in their own assigned domain. However, these arrangements broke down even quicker than the old ones, and not even Vladimir Monomak himself abided by the new rules when he claimed the throne of Kiev in 1113. Kiev remained the largest and most prosperous single city, the symbolic centre of the Rus, and the seat of the only metropolitan, that is the senior clergyman of Russian Orthodoxy. But its relative importance declined as some of the daughter cities began to grow in wealth and military might. This change was aggravated by changing patterns of trade in the 12th century. Byzantium was in economic decline, and so the old trade route along the Dnieper became less important. In addition, the conquest of lands by the newly created Crusader states of the Middle East shifted trade patterns between Asia and Europe, away from the overland route through Rus and more through the Levant. Over the 11th century, relations between the Rurikid princes became increasingly turbulent. The details of the ever-shifting struggles for power were insanely complex and in the long run unimportant, but the main consequence was the ending of any hope of a unitary state or even a stable confederation, and the inability of the various regional leaders to unite against an outside enemy. The rules of power-sharing designed by Yaroslav and Vladimir Monomak disintegrated completely as individual princes increasingly regarded their territories not as dominions held in trust for the dynasty as a whole, but as patrimonies to be passed on from father to son. At the top of the social structure, throughout the time of Kievan Rus, were the princes of the Rurikid dynasty, more specifically the descendants of Yaroslav the Wise. Under them were the members of the princely retinue, originally Vikings but increasing numbers of Slavs, who merged with the local tribal elites to form an aristocratic class called the Boyars. They were warriors, but in times of peace they administered the realm. Depending on the principality, the boyars had a greater or lesser influence on the actions of the prince. The townspeople, which included merchants and artisans, were able to decide some matters on local governance through a type of council called the Vyesh. Again, the level of political influence of the Vyesh differed in each principality, with its greatest extent in Novgorod, where its members were even able to influence which local prince would succeed to power in their city. The majority of the population, the peasants, had no political power. They were divided into free peasants and semi-free serfs. The latter could lose their freedom, usually because of debts, and reclaim it only once they had paid their debts off, or after a certain period. Right at the bottom of society were slaves, that is warriors or peasants, captured in military campaigns. During the first decades of early Rus, the ultimate goal of any ambitious prince of Rus was the taking of Kiev, but few managed to retain the city for very long. Between 1132 and 1169, 18 rulers succeeded one another as rulers of the capital. In 1169, however, the pattern was broken. That year, after a prince named Andrei Bogolubsky 
whose surname meant the good-loving, captured Kiev, he refused to move to the city and establish his capital there. Bogolubsky was content to leave the city to someone else, who he could manipulate, preferring instead to remain in his own capital city of Vladimir, on the periphery of the land of the Rus, more than a thousand kilometres northeast of Kiev. His principality, called Vladimir Suzdal, was in an area which in the 11th century was a remote and hostile outpost of the Kievan Rus world. But in the 12th century it had grown rich and powerful under leadership of Andrei's father, Yuri Dorogoruki, or Yuri the Long-Armed, whose name probably originates from his great influence along the land and waterways of Kievan Rus. Yuri founded several new settlements, including in 1147 Moscow, which for the first decades after its foundation was to be a relatively small and unimportant settlement. Centuries later, however, the city would benefit from the shift of political power within the Rusland away from Kiev, which began in the 12th century. Yuri's son, Andrei Bogolubsky, transformed the city of Vladimir with the construction of half a dozen churches and brand new city gates. With a lofty tower made of limestone and lined with golden plaques, the so-called Golden Gate was a clear attempt to emulate similar structures in Kiev and Byzantium, and so boost the prestige of Bogolubsky and his principality. He also brought the celebrated so-called Mother of God icon with him from Kiev, decorated it with silver, gold, gems and pearls, and gave it a place of prominence in Vladimir. Bogolubsky's claim was that his capital was by now the Ikov, if not the better, than Kiev, and in 1164 even attempted to create a new metropolitanate for Vladimir. In this case, however, he was overawed by the patriarch in Constantinople. After Andrei's death, his realm continued to flourish. By the end of the 12th century, the rulers of Vladimir were recognised by the primary chronicle as the most senior princes of the dynasty. The growing wealth and power of Vladimir Suzdal can be partly explained by its strategic position with regard to river routes. Three of its rivers, the Klyazma, Oka and Moskva, the Russian name for Moscow, linked to the Volga near the beginning of its great sweep southwards to the Caspian Sea. And the Moskva also provides waterways to Smolensk in the southwest and from there to the Baltic and Black Sea. Vladimir Suzdal's success was also largely based on military conquest and territorial expansion. Of particular note are campaigns fought by its rulers against the Volga Bulgars to their east to gain control over the trade passing through their lands to the Caspian Sea. They also intervened in the internal affairs of Novgorod to help win control of trade routes to the Baltic. The city of Novgorod was very different in nature to that of Vladimir. Its citizens had a long and proud history of doing things their own way. From his early days, dating back to even before Kievan Rus, Novgorod has served as a commercial link between the Baltic Sea and the Volga River. Merchants flocked there from Scandinavia to sell woolen cloth, weapons, pottery and salt in exchange for luxury goods imported from Byzantium and the Orient, such as silks and spices, gems, jewellery and silver coins, as well as goods from the northern forests of Russia, such as wax and furs. From the 12th century, however, the nature of Novgorod's foreign trade was changing. 
as Scandinavian merchants faced increasing competition from Germans, who brought with them silver coins minted in Europe called deniers, at the same time as silver from the Orient was beginning to dry up. There is also some evidence that fine Flemish cloth may have been imported by Novgorod as early as the 12th century. At the same time, the princes of Vladimir Suzdal became able to intercept the traditional novgorod bulgar trade along the Upper Volga. They prevented Novgorodian merchants from passing through their realm to reach the Bulgars, and likewise obliged Bulgar merchants to sell their goods within Vladimir Suzdal. Neither Novgorod nor the Bulgars accepted such interference in their trade without protest. Indeed, this became a source of friction that erupted into overt hostilities on several occasions. Ultimately, though, as Kiev's Black Sea trade suffered for reasons given earlier, and the Volga acquired added importance, the economic benefits went to the princes of Vladimir Suzdal. Another important centre of political power within Kievan Rus in the 12th century were the principalities of Volinia and Galicia. Situated in the southwest corner of the Rusland, straddling the area of today's Poland, Ukraine and Belarus, both regions had grown prosperous on a combination of rich agricultural land and trade with their western neighbours. Their strategic position, as well as a benefit, also attracted unwelcome attention. Throughout the 11th and 12th centuries, both Volinia and Galicia faced almost constant aggression and political interference from their western neighbours, especially the Poles and the Hungarians. The vast kingdom of Hungary to the southwest was separated from Galicia by the Carpathian Mountains, and the Federation of Poland was situated to their west. To the northeast lay the lands of the Teutonic Knights, and to the south lay the southern frontier with a tribe of steppe nomads called the Cumans, also known as the Polovsians or Kipchaks. In contrast to Vladimir Suzdal, where the princes were virtual autocrats, and to Novgorod, where most decisions were made collectively by the Vietch, in Volinia and Galicia, strong political influence was enjoyed by the local landholding class, that is, the boyars. In the year 1199, Volinia and Galicia united under the leadership of Roman Mstislavich, who subsequently became one of the most powerful rulers of Kievan Rus, known to French chroniclers as Rex Rusea. Roman was a highly capable ruler and commander. Among his military successes was a crushing victory over the Cumans, in response to a call for assistance from the Byzantine Emperor Isaac III Angelus. Around 1195 to 1203. As a reward, in 1200 he was able to marry a Byzantine princess, Anna, who became regent of his two infant sons when Roman died fighting against the Poles in 1205. Anna realised she could not control the entire territory of Volinia and Galicia because of the ambitions of both neighbouring Russian and non-Russian rulers, so she concentrated on Volinia. She lost control of Galicia to Prince Mstislav Mstislavich, known as the Daring, who was later a key figure in the Battle of Kalka River. The eldest son of Roman and Anna, Daniel, married the daughter of Mstislav the Daring, and over time regained control of Volinia, and fought as well at the Kalka River. You will hear more of both Mstislav and Daniel later. 
Another important principality in the 12th century was Smolensk. Situated as it was on the upper reaches of several major rivers, including the Dnieper, the region grew prosperous on trade. The other principalities of Polotsk, in modern-day Belarus, plus Ryazan, Chernigov, Turov and Pereslav, were all a little less wealthy or strong politically, but together with the other states of Kievan Rus formed a kind of political unit, which despite the many conflicts between its leaders, shared a similar culture and political ideology. In the 1220s and 1230s, this world of the East Slavs is turned upside down by the arrival of the Mongols, the subject of next week's episode. I have an announcement this week. I have just set up a page on Patreon.com. Quite soon I will be offering bonus material, there such as extra battles, to listeners generous enough to make a contribution of $3 or more a month. Consider any pledge you make as helping to the upkeep of the podcast, including the free episodes, and to allow me to purchase all the books I need to make as good a quality podcast as I can. I'll give more details next week when fully set up. Thanks for listening. My name is Carl Rydert. You can find me on the Facebook site of the History of Europe Key Battles podcast, or you can write to me directly at carl at ahistoryeurope.net. I hope you can join me next time for the arrival of the Mongols. So until then, have a great week and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.